Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Welcome to Healthy Tales, where we discuss current animal-related news, interview experts in specific areas of veterinary medicine, and discuss product information for pet owners in our Product of the Week segment. I'm your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, and with me today are my three amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy, veterinary technician Tim Hayes, and Dr. Robbie Unsel. Thanks for joining me, guys. Morning. Thanks a lot. We have a great show for you today. I'll be interviewing Dr. Natalie Asaza, and she'll be discussing the very complex world of shelter medicine. Shelter medicine has changed dramatically over the years, and Dr. Saza is ready to break it all down for us. Later, I will discuss a product that can help keep pets healthy and save their lives in our Product of the Week segment. I really want to take this time to thank our listeners for all their support over these first few weeks. If you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us. We love your feedback. You are welcome and encouraged to email me anytime at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Let's get to the news and the wolf on the street. My wife is having way too much fun trying to tell, trying out all these puns. Just, just bear with us. All right, Robbie, uh, we're starting with you today. What do you have with that for us in our uh, morning news? Sure thing. So uh, in early April, uh, Senators uh, Lindsey Graham and Chris Coons wrote a letter uh, to the Chinese ambassador to the United States uh, to urgently request that China immediately close all operating wet markets uh, that have a potential to expose humans to health risks through the introduction of zoonotic diseases uh, in the human population. Uh, And since then, there has been this mounting pressure on the Hill to form uh, bipartisan, uh, bipartisan legislation that would allow Congress and the U.S. president to force China uh, to close wet markets under the threat of tariffs or other means. Uh, the motivations uh, for this legislation um, is that COVID likely developed as a result um, of unregulated and unsanitary wet markets in the city of Wuhan, and also the historical connection between um, SARS and the avian flu outbreaks uh, with these unregulated wet markets. And unfortunately, the the term wet market has kind of been used in the media recently without uh, disambiguation. Uh, The quote unquote problem wet markets are the ones that uh, aren't regulated and are the ones trafficking in wild and or uh, exotic animals. And these are the ones that um, uh, are inevitably associated with these um, emerging diseases. Um, Regulated wet markets uh, that deal with traditionally eaten animals like fish, beef, pork, chicken have not had the same association with zoonotic diseases and in fact, you know, often play a pretty critical role uh, in urban food security due to, you know, factors of, you know, pricing, the freshness of food, the kind of the negotiation opportunities, um, social interaction in in local cultures and and actually in developing countries and agricultural based economies, uh, fresh meat is mainly distributed through traditional wet markets or meat stalls. The quote-unquote problem uh, wet markets arise when the sanitation standards are not maintained and when there's wildlife and exotic animals kept in close confinement uh, with other species. And, you know, hopefully legislation that is eventually proposed is nuanced enough to account for the important role that, you know, these regulated sanitary wet markets can play uh, while increasing, you know, the regulatory standards and even potentially outlawing uh, wildlife and exotic animal trafficking. I think they do have an opportunity to uh, improve animal welfare uh, significantly. 
But as you might imagine, another problem that could arise is that sometimes it's hard to obtain reliable information uh, from China and practical enforcement of this type of legislation is you know, potentially problematic. Absolutely. I mean, it is eye opening for me to learn about these wet markets, what kind of animals are involved in the trade uh, and the sheer number of people who get their food from these markets. It sounds like there's a, you know, such a high number of people coming in contact or being around so many of these like just exotic animals getting food. Um, again, if the Tiger King taught us anything, guys, is that we need to be responsible people and taking care of these animals. <clears throat> again, I just, again, I kind of equate to like the USDA, for example, again, is in place to inspect all food that comes into this country. Um, there are veterinarians involved in the, in the process of you know, bringing in food, inspecting it for its safety, among other things. Um, it's interesting, though, to see, um, again, just to see the different people uh, and, uh, again, in the positions all supporting really the idea of closing down these wet markets. Um, again, I know that they are valuable uh, to so many people who purchase affordable food there uh, to sustain their families. I do think, though, obviously, like in controlling the trade of exotic animals, uh, whether it be for food, um, again, is a good starting point to help decrease really the spread of these diseases. Yeah, I think it's really tough to just kind of put a blanket statement of overall wet markets that they all have to be shut down. Obviously, it, it does uh, have some implications with spreading these sorts of diseases and not being regulated. Um, but it is such a huge part of their economy as well. It's just like when here when we talk about you know shutting down our economy and how it has kind of upended so many people's lives here it's a similar situation there so us being so far removed from those wet markets here it's easy to say just shut them down reduce that risk but it is so much bigger than that there's so much more to consider before just kind of making that blanket statement with this absolutely i mean we really have to be careful with that absolutely mccarthy all right, so Elaine, do we have any, uh, any new COVID news this morning? You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as uh, kind of Dr. Unsel was talking about, bats are, are, seem to be implicated with the spread of COVID-19 at this point. Um, bats have kind of been the source of a lot of different coronaviruses, and uh, recently they've been studying kind of the Middle East um, Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, um, and, or MERS as what it's called. Um, and so for, somehow bats are able to kind of carry these viruses long term without getting sick. And, um, and from what they're seeing, the cells from brown bats can be persistently infected with this MERS virus for months, um, at least four months of time. And uh, then there's some sort of stressor on the bat, whether it be wet markets or other diseases, their habitat loss um, allows that virus to replicate. And then the virus adapts so well and so quickly, it's then able to jump from species to species and cause issues. Um, and kind of looking into why bats are able to kind of carry this virus for so long without having any sort of immune response to it um, is basically when they're kind of exposed to the virus, these bat cells adapt by not producing a huge inflammatory response. Um, and they actually have a special natural antiviral response that they, they can occur. So when it goes into a different species like humans or cats or whatever, um, the reason we see symptoms or clinical signs is because our immune system reacts to that virus and causes a big inflammatory response. So we get the fever, we get the respiratory issues and things like that. Whereas the bat just has an antiviral response and basically it doesn't reduce the or kind of kill off the virus 
it just kind of reduces the replication of it. But then we have these issues where some stressor happens, it causes to replicate, and then it can jump from species to species. Um, and then the MERS virus also adapts pretty well to the bat host cells, and it can rapidly mutate, which again then causes it to be able to go to other species as well. So basically they have this long-term relationship with each other, this virus and the bat, and then something happens that changes it and disrupts that balance. Um, so basically they're just trying to try to figure out, um, you know, if we find more information about this, can this predict the next bat virus that will cause a pandemic or help us to kind of come up with a solution that, that helps prevent this from occurring in the future. I love this article. <laughs> I was again have to nerd out for one minute. I, again, I just thought this article was so cool because it just showed how different um, animals' immune systems work in different ways. And it's, again, it's incredible. I think this is an immunologist obviously dream article. I also think it shows how important vet med is in understanding animal physiology and understanding that there are different uh, differences in our immune systems. All right, uh, it's so cool to see how animals, in this case, obviously bats, in this case, uh, have the virus in them, but it does not cause necessarily disease in them. And then uh, they are, however, able to trans, you know, transfer this virus to other animals or you know, humans and, you know, and then kill their cells. I mean, this is, it's, uh, it's obviously especially concerning that a virus such as, you know, such as in the bat is uh, far more likely to shed and, and obviously and transfer when these animals are experiencing stress. Because, I mean, what animal wouldn't be stressed in caged or confined in an unnatural environment, obviously, like in these, um, in these wet markets. So, again, I, Again, I thought this was really cool and just showing how obviously these things are connected and how they come about. And hopefully this will give us an idea of how we can start putting in, again, certain regulations being very uh, culturally sensitive, all right, to these wet markets that are around the world. But again, just showing how these things occur so we can be much more responsible and uh, everybody kind of coming to a consensus on how we need to regulate these things because we're uh, obviously this world is so interconnected, you know, uh, and these things can spread so quickly. So uh, again, that was such a cool article. Yeah, it kind of definitely reinforces the idea of one health, you know, where veterinarians, doctors, um, you know, epidemiologists can all kind of come together to understand how these emerging diseases are are, t are taking place. And yeah, I, obviously the, the article is really, really neat. Rabbit or um, uh, bet immune systems are just um incredibly different than uh, than than a few other animals and at least from what i understand too there are some some hypotheses as well that um the reason that smaller children aren't being affected by covid as much is kind of similar to, to, to bats and that they're not having this like dramatic inflammatory uh response um that is causing a lot of the a lot of the complications of the disease so that is kind of a cool little parallel um uh, that, uh, that that they tend to have cool 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 yeah and then uh, so again, I thought it was funny too, when I, when I loved it and I saw a super, uh, super immune system for bats, I was like, I guess that's why Batman uh, could never be defeated, all right? Because I mean, he had a super immune system. I had no idea. So. That is <laughs> all right, Tim, Tim, what do you have for us today? Uh, so there's a uh, group of uh, medical detection dogs that are uh, suggesting that we might be able to train dogs to sniff out COVID in humans. Um, it's not... A new idea. Uh, we've we've trained dogs in the past to detect various types of cancer, uh, malaria, Parkinson's disease, uh, epilepsy. Although the epilepsy dogs are a little less substantiated claim. Uh, there's a, a fair amount of research that suggests that they are physically capable of doing this. It's not an, an unreasonable idea to to put forth. Um, 
The issue being, we've had about 10 years of research into this, and while they're fairly confident dogs can smell some sort of marker, and they're not sure what it is in, in all these various diseases that the dogs are picking up on, um, in a lab setting, they really do seem physically capable of doing it. Um, but by the same token, it's been 10 years, and it's just not really catching on. You know, if you go to a, a doctor or a hospital and you, you, you think you have some disease, <clears throat> you've never once had a dog walked into the room, gotten a good sniffing, and you know, <laughs> they, they hand you a, paper, a piece of paper saying you, 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 you've got this disease. Um, and the reason is that in, in an actual real-world setting, there are a lot of complicating factors that, that make dogs perhaps not the best screening system. Um, in a lab, if you take five samples of blood, one of them has cancerous cells in it. The dogs pretty reliably, uh, up to a 99% accuracy rate, can point you know which sample has the cancerous cells in it. Um, they discovered that in a real world setting, uh, they've got a sensitivity rate of 78%, uh, which equates out to one in four false negatives, and a specificity rate of 34%, uh, which kind of, it's more or less that we've got two or thirds of our two-thirds of our, our positive results are false positives. Um, and when you start looking into why this might be, um, they, they did some research and what they determined was that at, at the end of the day, they're dogs. Uh, they're not machines. They're not, you know, they don't know what, to, they don't really know why they're doing this. They don't understand the, the importance of their work. It's a game to them. It, it's a training game. They are, they're looking for this one cent and when they get a mark, they get a treat. Um, and so anybody who's trained a dog kind of knows there are a lot of limiting factors for a dog's obedience. Uh, if they're not hungry enough, they don't really want your treats. They don't really care. So they, they find that these dogs are less effective when they're not hungry. If a dog's tired, if a dog's distracted, if a dog's stressed, um, we've all seen the people who, you know, they're like, oh, you, you want to see my dog's tricks? You can shake hands. And you're like, sure, yeah, I, great, let's watch this. And so they, you know, they're trying to get the dog to do it, and, and the dog's just not doing it. And the person's getting, like, increasingly sweaty and panicky. And they're like, they, they do it all the time. I don't, I don't know why she won't do it. And it's the same case in this. It's, you know, sometimes they just don't want to do it. Um, and, and so you don't really want a test, a screening system that, sometimes doesn't feel like being a screening system. Um, it, it leads to a lot of false positives, a lot of false negatives. And then there is also a, a human element to it, which is even if you tell somebody this is an incredibly effective system, when you go into a doctor, you've got a cough, you think you have COVID, if they walk a dog into the room to smell your breath and they say, yeah, a dog says you're negative, <laughs> even if you've been told this is an accurate system, you're still sort of like, smell my breath enough is he like is he on today is he like kind of like how how involved is he in this um people just don't necessarily trust it and if a screening system that people don't trust is not gonna ultimately be all that effective um and finally th there's this argument that you know there's this is going to be a, a time-saving thing and it's going to save a lot of lives it's going to be you know it only takes a second for a dog to smell your breath and, and move on to the next one but it, it doesn't really take into account that each one of these dogs, it's an incredible amount of expense and time that goes into training them. Um, 
and a lot of dogs wash out of these programs. So yeah, as a clinic, we have a lot of dogs that have uh, kind of failed out of service animal uh, training systems because they just didn't didn't have what it took. Um, so it's not going to be all that easy to get all these dogs up, trained, ready to go for this response. So, um, well, I think it's a very interesting science. I just don't know that uh, it's necessarily going to be our answer for COVID. Oh, Tim, I, I absolutely do. Under I understand. Absolutely. Because I understand, obviously, that these dogs have incredible sense of smell. All right. But I'm a little skeptical of being able to accurately um, discern uh, this virus. <clears throat> and again, I mean that because, I mean, again, I mean, again, that'd be awesome. But I can't imagine that one virus causes a million different humans, all right, to emit an odor. All right, that is perceived to them, uh, you know, to the same in dogs into a dog's nose. All right, so, and what I mean is like obviously, like I know that beans, you know, make us gassy, right? But I don't think that all black beans gases, all right, smell the same if it comes from different people. All right, so again, that's my flatulence uh, analogy for the day. <laughs> all right, but again, I could be wrong though. Uh, but again, again, I am I get a little skeptical that a virus causes the same smell from everybody. Uh, you know, so it's just it's a little right. Far but again, and, and and even if it does, you know, what other smells are the dogs responding to when? you know, you're, you're blowing your breath into their face, you know, if you had garlic, if you had you know, oh, yeah. Slim Jim before, you know, uh, and again, they're dogs, they don't, they, they don't know why they're there, what, what's being done. So they're just going to respond to different things in different ways every time. And, and I don't mean to take away from the impressiveness of, of their abilities, but uh, end of the day, they're, they're not <laughs> medically trained professionals. They're just a dog playing a game and, it, it's tough putting life and death decisions into their hands as much as we may love them it's it's you know potentially a risky situation absolutely all right uh since we've been talking about animals and those uh, again are part of the environment uh let's switch over again to the effects of covid on the environment we're having a very covid heavy day today all right i found a few different articles that were in uh, again just were interesting and um yeah obviously completely just warmed my heart all right so one article um that reported that seagulls in Italy are going back to actually hunting, okay, because uh, they're not being served meals like on a platter right now. And so uh, I think um, a lot of us have seen the pictures, all right, um, of like Los Angeles, again, like the smog-free Los Angeles, and we're seeing just like blue whales again off the, um, off the waters off of, uh, you know, uh, South Georgia. And finally, there's been another um, Another example where uh, these baby, I think they're like lowback uh, sea turtles, just the most adorable things, um, uh, are doing better than they've done in years, all right? Uh, just because humans really are, are not occupying the beaches. Again, I'm hoping that since, there are, since we are seeing these dramatic effects on our environment and its creatures, maybe it will like, help us see that like one, like how bad we've let things get, and two, that we can change things you know, some things and, um, and just obviously just make a difference. Maybe not remain at pandemic level change, but even like small individual changes can uh, have such a huge impact on a lot of just incredible species all around the world. And you're just all these articles coming out and we're seeing the effects of how impactful you know, uh, our decisions are on this planet. And we're seeing that when we kind of draw back a little bit, like just how impactful this can be. And we're starting to see some of these animals flourish. It's, uh, again, it's extremely heartwarming. Uh, I hope it's uh, like just completely eye-opening to 
so many people who just do not think um, that we're having effect on uh, global warming, on this environment, and just the little amount of change has made such a huge difference, all right, uh, in just a lot of species. And it's going to be really cool to kind of see over these next few months just how um, more, more of these articles and more of these things come out. So, all right. So uh, guys, thanks for keeping us up to date in animal news, everyone. Uh, again, don't forget listeners, if you have, if you love animals and want to help improve their quality of life, uh, also supporting others in our community, please visit the Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund at vetbrospeteducation.org. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, uh, or, or email me directly, vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. When we get back, we'll be talking with the inspirational Dr. Natalie Asaza and learning all we can in about 30 minutes uh, about shelter medicine. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Shelter medicine is the field of veterinary medicine that is dedicated to the care of homeless animals in shelters and dedicated to finding them new homes. Shelters face so many challenges because they have to maximize the high standard of care for individual pets, but are also dealing with an extremely large population. They are required to do this all the while lacking adequate resources, facing multiple staff training challenges, 
such as volunteer staff and high turnover, and having limited amounts of space. Shelter medicine has gone through a huge evolution in terms of how shelters are able to care for pets, how much they focus on behavior, and the amount of research being done. Shelter medicine has gone through a huge evolution in terms of how shelters are able to care for pets, how much they focus on behavior, and the amount of research being done. These have all helped to increase the standard of care and have increased the frequency of pets getting adopted into families. There is no better veterinarian to talk to about shelter medicine and its future than Dr. Natalie Asaza. Dr. Asaza graduated from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine in 1994. Following graduation, she completed an internship in small animal medicine and surgery at Cornell University and then worked in private small animal practice in both California and Kansas for three years. In 1998, she was hired by Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine to instruct veterinary students in spay, neuter, and dental procedures. In 2003, she was hired by the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine to start a shelter medicine program, now known as the Veterinary Community Outreach Program, and successfully ran that program until 2019. She became a diplomat of the College of Veterinary Preventative Medicine in 2018. She left UF in 2019 to start her own veterinary practice, providing veterinary care to animal shelters, animal rescue groups, and pets living in underserved communities. She is a co-founder of the St. Francis Pet Care Clinic, providing free veterinary care to low-income pet owners in Alachua County, Florida. During her time at UF, she received the University-Wide Superior Accomplishment Award, the College of Veterinary Medicine Alumni Achievement Award, and was named the American Humane Hero Veterinarian of the Year for 2016. She is passionate about the welfare of shelter animals and the delivery of veterinary care to underserved communities. She has been married to fellow veterinarian Ramiro Isaza since 1986, and they have two human, now grown, kids, as well as two dogs, four cats, three honey beehives, and three hens, and a rooster. Thank you so much, Dr. Isaza, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here, Mondrian. I love going through all those accomplishments. You're amazing. I want to tell my Dr. Isaza story. When I took, when I was a veterinary student at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, uh, <clears throat> I was in the shelter. Uh, obviously, uh, I did the shelter rotation. My first spay surgery, or one of my first surgeries I ever did. All right. Uh, I thought everything was going so well, just so smoothly, uh, until a bunch of blood, unfortunately, started pooling up. All right. Uh, you heard me scream your name. Okay. Uh, and you just very calmly came over, looked in the dog, found, you found the bleeding pedicle, you placed the suture, and you just told me, huh, place the, better, place the suture a little bit better next time. Uh, and then I just, I just remember thinking to myself, Dr. Asaza is a superhero disguised as a shelter medicine vet. And I can't fathom how many pets you must have saved. Uh, yeah, just didn't even blink an eye in that situation. So my first question is, did you grow up being that calm, cool, and collected person all the time? Or did you come, did that come after years, all right, of saving uh, pets from vet students? Oh, gosh. Well, I think my husband would disagree with you about the calm and collective. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think that uh, over the years, I, I tell students, uh, you know, I think I've seen just about anything that can be done to a, an animal done to it during a spay. Yeah. And so really nothing surprises me anymore. So if it's just a bleeding pedicle, I, that's nothing. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, I, I really think, Mondrian, that when I was a student and when I was an intern, I really appreciated when veterinary, the people that were teaching me veterinary medicine were kind and were patient and uh, not, you know, getting all been out of shape about things. And I really tried to do that with my students as well, because I know when you're learning, it's a scary thing. And it may be super easy for me to do a spay, but for a student that's never done one, you know, it's hard and it's scary. And I don't want to be that person that makes them never want to do another spay. So I try to encourage them rather than discourage them. Well, you are the reason why I still do space today. <laughs> so I'm very extremely, extremely thankful for you. So you graduated from the University of Florida. Um, now, before then, did you, did you go to undergrad at the University of Florida? Were you from Florida? I grew up in Orlando, uh, but I did not go to UF undergrad. I, my, it was kind of a family tradition in our family to go to Auburn University. My dad went there, an uncle went there, my aunt went there, my sister. So I went to Auburn uh, undergrad, and at mm. the time, had no inkling or idea that I wanted to be a veterinarian. In fact, I was an entomology major in college. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I really liked uh, medical entomology. So infectious diseases, spread by insects, you know, ticks and things like that, fleas. So uh, that's kind of was my focus. And I was not interested really in becoming a veterinarian at that time. Oh, wow. So how did that transfer? How did that, that change come about then? How did you know then that you wanted to be a veterinarian? When did that transfer occur? You know, it's funny. When I was a little kid, uh, my mom used to say that I would bring home little birds and bugs and little injured animals and I'd nurse them back to health and all the all of our neighbors would say, oh, she's going to be a veterinarian one day. And I never really thought about that. Now, I will say, I guess I thought that I could never be one because I would be too empathetic with the animals and I wouldn't be able to handle suffering. And uh, I think that a lot of students that go into vet school maybe worry about that a little bit. Um, but I think really what did it for me was my husband was in veterinary school and I was really interested in what he was learning. And I was more and more interested in everything that he learned. Mm. And that kind of took the scale for me and uh, made me decide that I wanted to go back and, and do vet school. So he graduated from Cornell University in 1988. Um, and so I uh, then went back and did a few prerequisites and uh, got into UF and graduated in 94. Oh, very cool. Okay. Oh, I was, one, I was always wondering. So you did an internship, then private practice, and then you went back to Kansas State doing spay and neuter and dentistry. Um, was that when you started to get an idea that you wanted to really get involved in shelter medicine? Actually, it wasn't. Um, shelter medicine at that time was still in its infancy. I think um, the first program um, at a vet school that started a you know shelter medicine program was UC Davis and they started that program I believe in 2001 or 2002 so even in 2003 when I started at UF it was still in its infancy um, quite honestly my uh, husband was offered a position at UF and at the same time they they had opened this new position uh, in shelter medicine to start a shelter medicine program and he's the one that encouraged me and I got to tell you I did that I was qualified. I said, I don't really know anything about shelter animals. And he said, you do this every day. You spay and neuter animals, you do dentals, you do, you know, healthy well checks, you, because I worked also in community practice. Um, and so he's the one that really encouraged me. I was apprehensive to say the least that I would be able to, to do that. Again, thinking 
back to, am I going to be able to handle all the suffering that I might see in a shelter? Um, but I'm, I'm really glad I did because I think that as a friend of mine says, um, who is a shelter veterinarian that, uh, and I feel this way too, that I'm kind of a born again shelter vet. So yeah. I, I was, didn't start out to be a shelter vet, but I, I found my calling and I feel like this is what I was put on the planet to do. Absolutely. And so when that shelter medicine program came about, that was the, so you were at the start of the Florida shelter medicine program. Did they tell you like why, or, you know, how did it come about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, So the department chair at the time um, told me that they had received a lot of input from veterinary students that they didn't feel like they were receiving adequate surgical training in Mm -hmm. spay neuter. And at the time, I mean, I can, I can empathize with that because when I was a, student, I had done half of a spay when I graduated. And that was when I was a senior and it was a cat mm-hmm. and I shared it with a classmate. <laughs> right. It was my own cat, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, when I was uh, on the surgical rotation. Uh, and so I, I kind of got that, you know, I, I had started, I started my internship and I had to teach students how to do spays and neuters. And you talk about deer in the headlights. I was terrified because I had done half of a cat spay. <laughs> And now we're doing these big fat labs, you know, and, you know, with cheap, you know, gut on a real suture. And I just, uh, it was scary for me. So that- I, I could understand why students were frustrated. And um, they, de- they decided to create a partnership with a shelter because they figured, well, that's where the students are going to get a lot of animals coming in. And we have a lot of opportunity to do surgery. And so um, that's how the shelter medicine program came about. When I first started at UF, for the first two years, I was based in Alachua County Animal Shelter. And so I, was, I sort of became the, the shelter veterinarian for the county, as well as teaching, you know, sometimes seven or eight students per rotation. So it was a little, a little crazy. And, um, you know, we, but we did get a lot done. And I did a lot of on-the-job on the learning. Nice. Uh, but, but it was a fun time. It was, it was super busy and, and it was stressful, but at the same time, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And just so all the listeners know, uh, this is how veterinary students always leave uh, vet school with about five animals that they've all worked on. And so that's, yeah. <laughs> that's how we get all our, that's how we get all that's our animals. That's a little scary to be, you know, letting people know that no one ever out of vet school. Yeah, I've, I've been a lot of animals. Well, well, actually, I will say that um, UF has, has always had a record of really training, doing a lot of good surgical training, especially since um, the shelter medicine program started. Um, and then, of course, um, Operation Catnip, which is a, a TNR program for feral cats that's been going on since the late 90s. So students have a lot of opportunity at UF to, to learn spay-neuter and to do a lot of spay-neuter. So... Uh, and I think it's getting better for everybody at all vet schools because yeah. of the number of internships available now. Yeah, I no, 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 I absolutely agree. Um, and the programs have been wonderful. So how has um, how has shelter medicine changed? You feel since again the UF uh, shelter medicine program started in two thousand three. How have you like how has it changed? You think over those past almost twenty years. So now? the particular program at UF has changed a lot because in two thousand eight. Um, Dr. Julie Levy, who uh, is also a, a shelter vet medicine veterinarian, um, received a grant from Maddie's Fund to start a shelter medicine, a big you know, shelter medicine program, multi-million dollar shelter medicine program at UF. And that program was focused mainly on um, 
training students um, in the classroom, like didactic training, also, um, also doing shelter consultations. So they would visit um, shelters throughout the state of Florida and actually throughout the, the Southeast and the country and, and do evaluations of the shelter. So in other words, for them, the shelter was the patient. For me, it was always the animals in the shelter. And so, um, you know, that's, uh, we had sort of two um, programs at the same time. Again, one focused on training students and working one-on-one -on -one with animals, and the other training students how to evaluate, <clears throat> you know, shelters and how a shelter functions. So, um, you know, UF now has probably the largest shelter medicine program in the country of, of all the vet schools. But there are a lot more now. Uh, Davis, of course, as I mentioned before, has one. Wisconsin has one. Um, I think there's uh, a, a few other um, smaller programs um, throughout the country. But we also have a lot of larger shelters that are have that have residency programs and training programs for students. So it's really ballooned now into this huge, um, huge thing where a lot of Students now, when they start veterinary school, specifically say they want to be a shelter veterinarian, which didn't happen 20 years ago at all. That's incredible. <laughs> I love the evolution of that. And yeah, yeah. you've been a huge, huge part of that. What is the postgraduate program of shelter medicine like? So there are a lot of internship programs um, mm -hmm. and now residency programs. Um, and of course, you know, it's not required that you do an internship or residency after graduation like it is in human medicine, but a lot of people are doing that. Uh, UF has an internship program in shelter medicine. They did previously have a, a residency through the Maddie's program, but they've since discontinued that. But there are a lot of um, residency programs at other universities, at big, large shelters. Um, and there's actually now even a board's uh, specialization in shelter medicine through ABVP, which is the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners. Oh, very cool. So you can uh, go as a, um, through a residency track, or you can go as an actual practicing shelter medicine veterinarian and qualify for those, to sit for those boards. Oh, wow. That's, that's yeah. so cool. I mean, again, yeah. just to have that type of training, you know, uh, is incredible because it's extremely just raising the standard so much in shelter medicine, which is incredible. Yeah. Well, so, it should, you know, <laughs> you know yeah, absolutely. It, our animals could end up there. You know, your pet could end up in the shelter. And of course you would want it treated like, you know, you were taking it to the most expensive vet hospital in town. And so, you know, you want that care for all animals because it could be your pet that ends up there one day. Oh yeah, absolutely. So can you speak to the challenges that shelters um, kind of still have and that they have to bring in, you know, pets with parvo, distemper, ringworm, and other infectious diseases, uh, and then obviously to control them with like obviously li limited funding and training, you know, can you speak to that, you know, as far as just the challenges that they yeah. have? Yeah, so there are different kinds of shelters. So there are what we call limited admission shelters. And those shelters are typically uh, big nonprofit shelters, sort of like maybe you would think of a humane society or an SPCA. Um, and those might be privately funded because they're a nonprofit organization. And those shelters have the ability to pick and choose which animals are come to their shelter. Um, and so in that instance, maybe if somebody shows up with a litter of puppies that all have parvo, uh, they can refer them down to the emergency clinic rather than have, have them come to their shelter. 
But there are other shelters like municipal shelters. And those are the ones that you would think that are you know, run by the city or the municipality or the county. And those are government funded typically. Um, and those, because they're taxpayer funded, um, have, they have to accept every animal that comes in. And so you're right, the challenges that they, those shelters face are huge. Typically they're more underfunded uh, than you know, some of these larger nonprofit shelters. Um, and that means they have very few resources to devote to some of these really sick animals. So you're right, you know, animals can come in um, maybe shedding distemper virus, maybe with parvo, um, ringworm, scabies, you know, all these zoonotic diseases we talk about, or even, you know, a trauma hit by a car that's going to, you know, cost a lot of money. And so the challenges that these, some of these municipal shelters face, and I'll say specifically in the South, is we have a lot of really rural shelters even surrounding Gainesville that do not have the resources to, to care for animals like that. And so that's kind of what we did with, the, with my shelter medicine program is we would kind of try to identify some of these injured sick animals and try to help the shelter um, through a program called HEARTS, which um, provided care and, and, you know, for animals that were injured or sick. But it is a big challenge. Um, you know, you think about some of these big giant shelters that, you know, like, okay, let's just say the ASPCA in New York City. They've got a lot of money. Um, they probably have, they have a big hospital, they have resources, so they have the money to take care of, of some of these animals that come in. They also could and have the ability to say, you know what, we, we can't take that animal. So um, it is, uh, you know, it's a little dichotomy of sorts. You know, you don't, so they're not the same, you know, uh, and municipal shelters certainly do face um, a lot more challenges, I think, than some of the larger nonprofits. No, and that's great to know because, again, um, I definitely know that most people think that all shelters are just equal, you know, and there is extreme differences between how they're funded and where things are coming from. So that, that was perfect, you know, because that's really eye-opening um, yeah. so for people to understand and kind of how maybe where, maybe where their support should be in many, in many cases. So right. um, this is kind of on the same lines, though, but can you express to me that some of like, the challenges like, that shelters face um, really just like, I don't know, nomenclature, just having to treat both the individual patient, but also have this herd health mentality, um, you know, the individual versus like population medicine. Uh, and is that term herd mentality look like looked down upon you think when we're talking about cats and dogs, you know, just or just, from, you know, yeah, you know, I think actually, um, we can learn a lot from dairy vets, <laughs> and vets that take care of large herds of animals. Because I think that, you know, most veterinarians out there, even if you're taking care of a dairy herd, you're going to care for that individual animal as well. Um, but it, it, it is a nice uh, tool to have to be able to diagnose a certain, maybe you're diagnosing distemper in a shelter, and then be able to use the same tools that dairy veterinarians or, or beef cow veterinarians or goat veterinarians or pig veterinarians use as far as isolation and quarantine. Uh, to protect the entire population. So um, I think that they've actually given us a lot. Uh, the, these large animal vets have been doing it for years, and it's almost like the light bulb went off with shelter veterinarians about you know, 15 years ago. Wow, we can do this too. We're dealing with a big population, but yet we can still treat each in individual animal with respect and care. Um, but you know, a, a, a good example of that really is distemper because 
it, the incubation period is so long and it can really devastate a shelter. So if you if somebody can get a handle on it soon and isolate quarantine, um, you know, possibly even euthanize the sickest animals, um, then you can hopefully keep it from spreading to the entire population. Very cool. Very cool. Dr. Sousa, how do you see the role of shelter veterinarians in our community? I think that uh, one of the major roles a shelter veterinarian plays is that of a public health servant. Um, if you think about um, animal shelters uh, where maybe there's a bite or you, uh, you know, somebody brings in a, a sick raccoon, um, there's always the thought of rabies. So a shelter veterinarian has to always be hyper aware of that. Um, also other zoonotic diseases in the community, ringworm, um, uh, scabies, uh, all these, uh, so even some you know, hookworm diseases that, that, uh, that we think about. You know, animal, uh, shelter veterinarians have to deal with that every day. So they have to make sure that all the animals are dewormed properly before they're adopted. They have to make sure there's no ringworm. You don't want to send a kitten home to a home with a lot of children. If there's ringworm on the kitten, that would yeah. really be a great public, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, public health thing to do. So um, I think that that's super important. We really do serve a, a, a very strong role in public health and communities. Very cool. And so uh, what are some like environmental enrichment successes uh, you've seen in implemented in shelters? So I, I think that this is something that I've really seen over the last few years really take off. Uh, there's been a group uh, recently uh, called Dogs Playing for Life. And uh, this group actually uh, sets up um, dog play groups. And so they'll go around to different shelters all over the country and they'll work with the staff and the veterinarians there to set up play groups of compatible dogs. Um, and so these dogs, rather than um, sitting in a kennel all day, they have a few hours where they're out with two or three dogs that they get along with and a volunteer and they're playing and they're, you know, playing in a pool or they're playing with balls. And um, so that's super helpful for especially some of these high energy dogs that really, really need to get out and, and you know, get sow their oats a little bit. Um, as far as cats, I think one of the things that I've seen happen over the years that has really helped is the increased size of the cages and even moving to group housing. Um, we know that in shelters, uh, cats that are in smaller sized housing actually are more prone to getting sick. And so we, if we increase the cage size where they're actually able to mimic their normal behavior in, in the house, if they're home, they're less sick because less um, With group housing, three or four in a group different bed and to play with high things like that is really really help welfare of, of cats and shelters very cool and uh, so there has been so much research over the past two decades how do you feel this this research has improved the welfare of shelter animals um, you know so there can be you know in terms of uh, you know wealth and overall uh, body of knowledge about shelter species, animal behavior, animal welfare, uh, companion animals? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, uh, great research out there. Of course, there's research in infectious disease and how you know, diseases spread and um, discovery of, of new infectious diseases like canine flu. Um, 
But also, um, you're right, a lot of animal welfare type uh, research. And that's one of the, the reasons, I think, that we've seen such improvement in the care of shelter animals over the years. We actually even now, you know, within the last 20 years, have a board certification for animal welfare. And of course, that's not just dogs and cats, that's all animals. But I think that that's definitely something that is helping um, our shelter populations. But, uh, you know, this really is, I, I believe, one of the fastest growing segments of veterinary medicine. People, like I mentioned before, a lot of students, when they start vet school, this is what they want to do. And I understand that because it feels like they, you know, when they go to vet school, they want to help animals. They don't necessarily, you know, uh, you know, really want to work with humans. And that's a terrible thing to say. People say, oh, I didn't go to med school because I didn't <laughs> want to deal with humans. But you know, in private practice, you deal with humans. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it's not a bad thing, but a lot of people just think, you know, I'm just going to eliminate that. I'm just going to work right with the animals. Um, but again, there's always people involved. So <laughs> you've got to have some kind of a skill set of, of working with people, too. So um, it's, not, it's not an isolated thing. But no, I think uh, the amount of research out there, um, all of the, the different schools that have shelter medicine programs, um, we now have a program through Fear Free. You know, I'm sure you've heard of Fear Free Practice. We have Fear Free Shelters now. So people that work in shelters are being trained in Fear Free techniques um, to help, you know, those animals that uh, are super scared or maybe anxious, um, maybe make their shelter stay um, as, as, you know, Absolutely. Has there been a particular part of the research that you found that has been your most, you know, most impactful, you feel like, or your favorite, um, you know, study that's been done that has been, you know, really resourceful? Yeah, I mean, I, I really think it's all the behavior stuff because, you know, for so long, we, we would just, uh, you know, animal control, would just pick up a dog with a rabies pole and throw it in a cage and, and you know, maybe not lay hands on it uh, until it, they took it to the euthanasia room. And I think, um, you know, now with all the research, we know um, specifically what dogs and cats need. And we know um, by providing some of these um, enrichments that they're going to be happier in the shelter. They're going to be more healthy. It's going to, they're going to be more adoptable. And so I think, um, you know, with all of this uh, research on animal welfare has really, really upped the game. Um, and made shelter animals just, you know, more appealing to adopt. Awesome. And so what are your thoughts on, you know, kind of um, the, what uh, I think it's like, what's the, like the standard of care that shelter medicines uh, should follow? And so in 2010, uh, the Association of Shelter Veterinarians wrote a, uh, or published, self-published a guideline for the standard of care in animal shelters. And I, I was fortunate enough to be one of the authors on that. And, and it's a, a, it's a short, um, it's not a huge long um, uh, article uh, or guideline. It's about 60 something pages long, but it, it covers pretty much all aspects of shelter medicine from medical to spay neuter to animal transport to euthanasia um, and even public health. And so there's a separate chapters for each one. It's downloadable from the Association of Shelter Veterinarians website, which is um, 
uh, animal sheltering. Um, and it, uh, it's, it's a great guide for shelters. It's certainly not meant to be a, you know, prescriptive, but more um, just a helpful guide for people to, to just change things slowly or incrementally to get to the point where the animals are, are best cared for. Very cool. Um, and so is, um, let's skip down to actually go into, uh, is compassion fatigue more of a problem you feel like in shelter medicine as compared to other um, areas of veterinary medicine? You know, I, that's, that's a great question. I, I wonder that too. I know, you know, I mentioned earlier when I started as a shelter vet um, that I always thought that, that that might be a little bit too hard for me. Um, and I, I guess it was for me at the beginning because we, I saw a lot of animals euthanized for space rather than for um, a medical problem. I have no problem as a veterinarian euthanizing an animal that needs to be euthanized, an animal with terminal cancer or an animal with horrific injuries or a, a horrible infectious disease that they're not going to recover from. But it, it is um, hard, I think, for, for people, for veterinarians to euthanize healthy animals. And fortunately, in shelter medicine, we're getting away from that now. We are getting to the point where um, shelters are really trying hard to find homes for, for everything, including injured and sick. And so um, it, it's becoming uh, less common. I think that there's still uh, a level of, of compassion fatigue, of course, because you're going to see animals brought in in horrific conditions. Maybe they were being abused by an owner. Um, and that, that can wear and tear on your soul if you see that over and over again. But I certainly also think in private practice, you know, one of the reasons um, I think anyway that a lot of people suffer from compassion fatigue is just, there's just a, a real, I think, a real lack of appreciation for what we as veterinarians do every day. And, um, you know, we're, we're sort of thought to be these, you know, money hungry uh, doctors <laughs> and, you know, we're just making millions of dollars and this is you know, and if you really love animals, why won't you treat it for free? Um, and, and that's a really hard thing for a person to bear. Um, you know, we, we love and we want to help your animals as much as anybody. And um, sometimes we just, our hands are tied. Um, so I, I, in, in that respect, I think that maybe a lot of veterinarians or new grads maybe want to do shelter work because they feel like they don't have to get permission to treat an animal. They can just go and do it, uh, depending on the resources of the shelter where they're working. Oh, great point. Yeah. Uh, so Dr. Salza, how difficult uh, has it been for shelters to pursue a, a no-kill policy? I think it's uh, gonna be different depending on the kind of shelter uh, you're talking about. So um, for instance, uh, we were talking about municipal shelters earlier. Some of the more rural shelters in the South um, may be more under-resourced than, say, a big shelter in New York City. And so um, for them, um, a no-kill policy, and no-kill, just to clarify, it really means about a 90% or above live release rate. Um, so that means that there's, there's always going to be animals that need to be euthanized for whatever reason. But the, the whole idea of no kill is to be 90% or above live release. And for some really rural shelters, that's going to be very, very hard to do. 
especially in the middle of kitten season when people are bringing in litters of kittens and and you're in a rural shelter with a population of 10,000 and you know where where are you going to send these kittens so um it is a lot harder uh, than you know more more resource shelters in a in a large population center what are some reasons that um the animals are put down then at the no kill shelters so um for no-kill, uh, again, probably the one of the biggest uh, reasons an animal might be put down is a behavior problem. So, for instance, maybe an animal that's aggressive or an animal that is bitten multiple times. Um, that animal might not be deemed safe to be placed in a home. And so, as a shelter veterinarian, you wouldn't want that on you if, you know, if you did adopt that animal out and then it attacked the child. Um, so, so that's probably the biggest reason, but then of course there's other, um, reasons if you have, um, you know, an animal that has been hit by a car that has multiple fractures, maybe hemorrhaging, maybe dying right in front of your eyes. You don't necessarily want that animal to suffer. You don't have the resources to send it to an emergency. That would be, uh, certainly a legitimate reason to, to euthanize an animal. Um, and then, you know, of course, if sometimes you get animals in, uh, that maybe are are turned in by their owner because they have some chronic disease. You know, they might be an older animal um, that really um, isn't doing well. You don't have options for hospice where you are. That might be a legitimate reason. So the bottom line is with a no-kill shelter, you should not be euthanizing animals for space, which is really what um, was happening a lot when I first started um, at UF at our own local shelter. Um, if we ran out of space, we just euthanized animals and they, they could be healthy and it was, it was accepted. Mm. So we went from about a 50%, 56% live release for dogs to uh, Alachua County is now at about 94%. Oh wow. Yeah. oh, wow. That's incredible. And yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you explained the, uh, <laughs> obviously that no kill doesn't necessarily mean no kill. Um, but that, um, again, that, that 90%, okay? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. how successful do you feel that this no-kill movement uh, has been? I mean, definitely in the last year, it sounds very successful. And yeah. do you feel like there's a concern that other shelters um, that are not necessarily no-kill um, are having to kind of bear the burden on some of these situations? Yeah, you know, and actually that's why um, a lot of people actually use the, the term adoption guarantee or what you are you know, uh, had mentioned earlier about the socially conscious sheltering. So um, adoption guarantee is essentially just means that any animal that is healthy and safe, meaning that it's not going to hurt a person if you release it out into the public, um, will be adopted or, or, or sent to a rescue. Um, and so I think that when you, when you put that no-kill moniker on, um, on a shelter, especially an under-resourced shelter, it does make them feel bad, you know, because maybe they have to euthanize for space still because they don't have the resources. They don't have the rescue groups coming out to their little rural shelter to pick up, you know, 20 kittens. Um, and what do they do when they run out of space? So, you know, we don't want them to feel like they're not doing a good job. They're doing the best they can. And so we, we try not to use that term because we don't want them to think, oh, you're a, you're a kill shelter. 
versus a no-kill shelter. Right. You know, because all shelters euthanize animals. All shelters do. Right. And so, um, can I don't know if you can talk about like the hospice and palliative care um, that shelter medicine um, is, is doing. Yeah, a lot of the bigger shelters, of course, um, probably have you know in-house hospice, but I think a lot of uh, shelters are are working with rescue groups uh, to provide foster homes for palliative care. And so, for instance, I work with a group down in Ocala that has an older dog that was found as a stray. Um, it had a horrible mouth, uh, uh, horrible renal values, um, probably, you know, not going to live a whole long time because, you know, her kidneys are really not good. So they put her into hospice. So she's in a foster home for the rest of her life, which might be a short life, but the idea is to give them the care and the love that they deserve, um, even though they might not have very long to live. And I think that that's something, um, you know, it used to be that an old dog came to the shelter and they were euthanized because they were old. And you and I both know, we were taught in school that old age is not a disease. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I tell people it all the time. So, uh, you know, maybe, you know, if, if you have the ability to do blood work and you find something going on with them, rather than euthanize them, you know, send them to a home, you know, to live out their last few days or weeks. Um, with somebody that loves them. And, and that's super important, I think, for, for everybody, not just animals, but everybody wants to have that kind of, um, you know, feeling of uh, belonging and, and feeling that they are cared about. And so animals are no different, in my opinion. So I think it's a great thing that they're doing. Um, they're not automatically euthanizing an old dog or an old cat. They're sending it out um, to somebody that will love it for the last remaining days of its life. And I have some really amazing owners, you know, yeah. uh, that almost exclusively uh, adopt and have older pets. And that's the only thing. Yeah. And, it, and it is, it can be just unbelievably rewarding. And, you know, and they, some of these pets just tend to be the greatest, best pets. And these owners are just in love with them. And it, it is it, incredible. It, it is amazing. I, I, I have a, a friend who fosters for a local rescue and she will only take old dogs. <laughs> so they'll get these old dogs and I love these rescues that I work with too, because it used to be that they would just kind of ignore these old dogs, but now they take them and they find these, they have these certain fosters that they just put these dogs with or cats, cats too. And they just stay with them for months, you know, or weeks or however long it is. And uh, it's just a great thing. I just feel like um, it's just such a kind thing to do to an animal at the end of its life. Very cool. And so I wanted to get your uh, thoughts on the, uh, this new movement that is, um, I feel is coming forward in, in socially conscious sheltering. Because uh, mm -hmm. again, uh, I'm not sure if it started in Colorado. Uh, you know, I'm on the board uh, of the CVMA. And so um, they kind of did a, a, a spiel on it. And it does sound mm -hmm. like really, it, it sounds great to me at this time, really just making sure um, just I don't know if it stemmed from a lot of like no-kill shelters um, being overburdened with trying to meet the markers. And sometimes it's just extremely unrealistic and putting more of the burden on other shelters that are, you know, like, I guess some of them would like take their, take these dogs that they know are going to be euthanized and take them to these other shelters that they know would take. And, you know, uh, and so sometimes just kind of sharing the burden, it kind of sounded like, and it sounded like it's just an extremely responsible way. And so that when a pet is put down, especially when they're, again, not healthy, very sick, and there's just really no means to 
um, you know, put an owner in a situation where they're having to pay for a dog and renal failure with congestive heart failure and those type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on that this new movement maybe that's kind of pushing out there about socially mm-hmm. conscious sheltering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think it was meant to kind of relieve some of the angst of shelters that did um, have to euthanize. And the whole idea is really, uh, you know, just what you and I as veterinarians do every day. And that's just providing the best care we can for the animals that we have in our shelter. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, having a place, a safe place for an animal to go, um, providing pain relief and care, um, providing medical care if possible. If not, then maybe um, moving the animal to a rescue or um, another um, uh, shelter that can provide that care. So really it's trying to relieve the, the burden that, of that no-kill thing that hangs around some of these smaller shelters next. So yeah, I think it, um, it was, it, you're right, it was started by um, a group of women in Colorado. Uh, and there were, I think it was eight women um, that are directors of sh- big shelters in um, Colorado. And they just came together and, and talked about what their ideas of, of animal sheltering were and what they thought um, was, you know, achievable and um, a good goal to try to reach. And that is basically just providing, I mean, it's, it's sort of common sense, providing the best care um, that we can for the animals that come to shelters, providing um, uh, resources for shelters that maybe don't have them. Um, and it's an aspirational goal, of course, because again, some of the, some of the um, municipal shelters in rural areas are, are not going to have those resources, but it is, um, like I said, I think it was meant to kind of, um, rather than make a benchmark of like 90% and you're no kill, um, just trying to push these shelters to be the best shelter that they can be for yeah. the animals. Yeah, and, and I really hope it takes off. I really hope, again, yeah. this, uh, um, this kind of solves that problem. Uh, again, I'm extremely, extremely excited about it. And so uh, we'll have to just kind of see in the years to come how, how this all kind of pans out and see if more people yeah. take on this type of initiative. So, uh, Dr. Saza, you have been so wonderful. I cannot thank you enough for being oh, on here. So you fun. are, just so you know, you've been so impactful in my life, um, like in like nothing else. Uh, when we used to go, when I was in the shelter uh, medicine rotation, and we would go to homeless shelters uh, and help, you know, help their pets, uh, mm-hmm. it was extremely just meaningful uh, to me. Uh, and that really, really wanted to push me, it pushed me to really play such an important role in our community. Um, yeah. Being, you gotta see, besides you being so unbelievably accomplished, okay, your career has been amazing. I, I really do feel like your biggest legacy uh, will be the impact that you've had on your students because we all love you. We adore you. Uh, and you have been just uh, just unbelievable in your support um, for us and our growth. Uh, and you really have just been always just unbelievably there for us. And so I can't thank you enough. Honored that you're on my show because you're just, just so amazing. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Saza. I really appreciate it. You're incredible. Oh, you're so welcome. It has been a blast. And it was so great to see you. And I love you just as much. <laughs> you're an awesome person and a fantastic vet. And I'm very proud. Thank you so much, Dr. Saza. I really appreciate it. Okay, guys, when we get back, I'll reveal my product of the week.
us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards healthcare for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. It's time for our product of the week. As pet owners, we bring animals into our lives and they quickly become a beloved member of the family. We love when our pets get so excited to see us, when we come home and we love when they snuggle with us, when we relax. Our pets can be amazing at teaching our children empathy and responsibility. These are just some of the roles our pets play in adding love and companionship to our everyday lives. But what we don't always plan for is accidents that can occur. Unfortunately, these things can happen. Like when your significant other brings home flowers, the last thing you are thinking of is, could those be toxic to my cat? Or maybe you're feeding your family a healthy meal with grapes and some fall off the plate and your dog eats it. Or maybe your cat accidentally gets into the garage and your car has leaked some antifreeze. Or maybe you were just giving your dog a little slice of pizza and they develop pancreatitis. As a veterinarian, I see these types of accidents every day, even in the most loving and mindful families. What's worse is that owners have to make financial decisions, such as trying to save their pet's life or humanely euthanizing their beloved pet. The great news is that there continues to be advances in veterinary medicine and treatment options, making these problems treatable, but at a cost. The reality is that many owners are stuck in a difficult position where they need to make medical decisions based on financial means rather than medical needs. Now more than ever, pet owners are investing in their pet's health, which allows them to make treatment decisions based on sound medical advice rather than making medical decisions 
based on financial resources. No one wants to struggle with difficult decisions like this when the situation is already emotionally draining. This is why today's product of the week is pet insurance. Yes, the incredible Lassie was not only an icon trailblazer on the big screen, but paved the way for pets to be insured as Lassie was the first pet to be insured. More than 1 million pets are covered with pet insurance in the United States. And when we compare pets that have pet insurance with pets who do not, those with pet insurance are more likely to receive life-saving care. For better or for worse, we do not want to think of pet insurance like we do human insurance. It is in no way the same. Pet insurance is much more closely related to property insurance than with health insurance. With pet insurance, you can go to any licensed veterinarian with a claim. Policies are way, way more simple compared to human health insurance. Premiums are relatively cheap with a healthy young dog. One major difference is that human health insurance, you sometimes don't even see the bill. However, with pet insurance, you have to pay first and then get reimbursed. With pet insurance, there are almost always copays and deductibles. And for the most part, they will not cover pre-existing conditions. But just like veterinary medicine is a fraction of the cost of human medicine, pet insurance is also a fraction of human health insurance costs. I recommend that when pet owners look for coverage, they have an idea about what they want covered. Do you want wellness and accident coverage or just wellness or just accident coverage? Next, look to see what is covered and what is not covered. This is really important. Depending on your pet's breed and lifestyle, you may feel a specific issue is important for the insurance company to cover, in which case you should talk with your veterinarian to see if they agree. The best time to enroll your pet is when it's a puppy and make sure you have that discussion with your veterinarian to see if there is no problem with pre-existing conditions in the future, especially since dogs can be enrolled in plans as early as six weeks of age. It's also important to know and prepare yourself if premiums will go up as your pet gets older. Finally, it's my opinion that with pet insurance, accident coverage is the most important and the most cost-effective type of coverage. So many policies now are really affordable. $35 a month for a young, healthy dog and even less than a cat. Just like every parent should have life insurance, every pet owner should, at a minimum, have accidental coverage for their pets. This can be one of the single best investments you make in your life. But even more, it can give you the peace of mind that your pet will be treated in case the unthinkable happens. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, listener, for all your amazing support. Please rate us on iTunes and download us 24-7 on demand for all the latest episodes. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Elaine, Robbie, and Tim, and to my expert guest, Dr. Natalie Asaza. We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips and help you unleash your pet parenting power. Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.